that sort of evolutionary side of things is where we have done most of our work prior to COVID. And so although it was a horrible thing to see happen, it was fascinating in many ways from an evolutionary standpoint to see first Alpha come through and basically replace the original variant and then Delta do the same thing. The UK has had a remarkably good surveillance system and a remarkably good group of people doing modeling there. And so when Alpha spread initially, the first alarm bells of that came from the UK and they had good enough data to be able to estimate a lot of the parameters quite well. And so by the time it started to come and take off here in Canada, we already knew quite well what the characteristics of Alpha were going to be. And so before it really was even noticed here, we'd already made modeling projections about the consequences of the spread of that. And all we needed to know at that point then was once we can figure out how frequent it is here in, in Canada, we can then use those parameter estimates from the UK and very, very accurately actually project what's going to happen going forward. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Troy Day, Professor of Mathematics, Statistics and Biology at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. Troy Day has been a Natural Sciences Fellow here at SCAS in the autumn 2018, before we even knew about the COVID-19 pandemic. But since the onset of the pandemic, he has been involved in modelling, and we will hear a lot more about that in this episode. And this is the second episode within our theme, Life Sciences. So welcome to Scas Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Thanks, and nice to be here. Yeah, my name is Troy Day. I'm a mathematical biologist. I work primarily in evolutionary biology, particularly the evolutionary epidemiology of infectious diseases. And so that's how I've come to be involved in a lot of what's been happening in the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of people are epidemiologists nowadays. Yeah, that's right. It's pretty interesting, actually, that everybody seems to have become an epidemiologist at some level. And there's been a lot of interest from people in all kinds of disciplines in terms of, you know, constructing models for the spread of disease. I'm not sure why this time people have become so interested in it, but uh, it certainly sparked a lot of interest. Yeah, that was fascinating to see at the beginning of the pandemic, how people were just jumping onto the topic, really. But uh, then very broadly, what is your research about, apart from the COVID modeling? As I said, I'm a mathematical biologist. So what we do is develop theory for various processes in evolutionary biology, primarily. So one of the things we've spent a lot of time on recently is building models for the evolution of drug resistance in response to things like antibiotics, but also in response to things like vaccination as well. And trying to use ideas from evolutionary biology to better understand treatment protocols that might lessen the likelihood of the emergence of resistance. So that's sort of the most applied end of the things that I do. We're also interested in more fundamental questions in evolutionary biology. So why organisms have the particular life histories that they do. So their schedule of reproduction and mortality. Why do some organisms live really long and reproduce at certain times? Others have very short lifespans, those kinds of questions. And the evolution of mating systems, a wide variety of different kinds of sort of, I guess you might call basic evolutionary biology questions. How come you got interested in this topic and in this research area? 
what I do is kind of in between two disciplines. So I, I'm an applied mathematician in one sense. I'm a, an evolutionary biologist in another. I, I've always been interested in mathematics and quantitative things. And so I certainly had an interest in that in my undergraduate degree. But I also was really interested in the life sciences. So in fact, what I did initially was an undergraduate degree in the life sciences. And it was really towards the end of that degree that through a few courses that I took, really, that my interest was sparked particularly in evolutionary biology. And then I came to realize I wasn't very good at doing experiments and that sort of thing. And, and I had more of an aptitude for theoretical questions and ideas. And so I moved from there into the more mathematical side of, of the questions. And nowadays, I mean, a lot of biologists don't even do so many experiments now. It's a lot about data and bioinformatics. Yeah. So I suppose if I was coming through at this point, maybe that's where I would have ended up. I'm not sure. But it was a, largely a failure in my part to be able to do experiments in any reasonable way that led me to become more of a theoretician. I guess the other thing I think it's worth saying that I find kind of interesting is Within the life sciences, I sort of think of evolutionary biology as, in some ways, maybe not the more quantitative part of life sciences, but it's based on some on a very small number of principles in some ways. And from those principles, you then are meant to deduce a variety of different things for how organisms would evolve. And that has a very mathematical flavor to it. And so I think that's why the combination of those things really resonated with me. Yes. So you've been involved in the modeling of the spread of COVID-19. First of all, can you give us an overview of the situation and interventions in Canada and especially your area, Ontario? Right now we're in the, I guess, the middle of the fall term. So I'm in a reasonably small university town, basically, but it's somewhat reflective of what's happening in the province more generally. There's quite a bit of heterogeneity across Canada in terms of both the response to COVID and the consequences as a result of those differences in how people responded. So the modeling that was done to project what was going to happen this fall looked pretty dire, but it turns out so far at least that things have actually been a lot better than maybe a lot of people had anticipated. I mean, there's still COVID, obviously, but the case counts, the daily case numbers, the number of deaths is really quite a lot less than I think a lot of people were expecting, particularly because we've now opened up, not entirely, but we've opened up quite a lot compared to what was happening previously. And that's why I think people expected things to take a turn. And they really haven't become so bad at this stage, at least. So what are the current restrictions? So there's masking required indoor. I, I think the big thing that really made a huge difference is Many, many places have mandatory vaccination requirements. So at the university I'm at, for example, everybody has to be fully vaccinated to be on campus. And that's resulted in somewhere between 95 and 98% of the entire university population, both staff and students, being fully vaccinated. And I think that's had a huge effect. The vaccination coverage was pretty high already, but these policies that were put in place really pushed it to the next level. And if you don't get vaccinated, then there are quite severe consequences in terms of students being de-enrolled, staff not being able to work, being put on leave. So although that's been a, you know, a source of controversy to some extent, not surprisingly, I think it's really done a lot to control the spread of the disease. So I'm just curious now, what does it look like in other sectors like the healthcare sector? Here in Sweden, we're having a discussion whether unvaccinated staff should be allowed to work near risk groups or the elderly. So the same is true here. I mean, again, it's quite varied, I think, geographically, but it was the same sort of issues that came up. 
there are a certain subset of people who didn't want to get vaccinated. And now the question is how to deal with that. And in particular, for people who are working in the healthcare sector, like you say, removing them from that settings, their actions have consequences for other people. I think that's the main thinking behind and removing those people at this stage. It's also true for restaurants. You know, if you go to a restaurant, if you go to a, stay in a hotel, we went away this weekend to a place just north of here. Everywhere you go, you need to show your proof of vaccination if you're going to go inside somewhere and you still need to wear a mask. The regulations will remain in place, I think, for quite some time yet, but they're starting to relax the restrictions on group sizes and things in the coming weeks as well. So as I said, you have been involved in, in modeling the spread of COVID-19. We can talk a little bit more about that. So first of all, what has your role been or what is your role in this work? In the province that I'm in, which is Ontario, there is a, what's called a table of people, a group of people that are mathematicians, statisticians, epidemiologists, public health people, some social scientists as well. And they're a group of people who kind of came together voluntarily to try and provide advice, basically, for the government in terms of the policies they would implement and the kind of measures they would take to try and control COVID. The modeling side of that, which is the part I'm involved in, basically is it's largely self-directed in the sense that because most of us have been modeling infectious diseases for a long time, we sort of think about what we expect will need to be modeled and we go about doing that. But there's also occasionally, I mean, quite occasionally, actually, questions that come kind of from the top down. You know, So people who are going to make decisions want to know What would they expect to happen if they do this? Or what would they expect to happen if they use masks or if they, you know, close down this sector? And so those very specific questions, they often give to the modeling table and people go away and try and construct models and provide some feedback for those sorts of questions as well. The key thing that I think is quite nice about what's happened in Ontario for this group of people is it's politically independent, I guess you would say. So we're not appointed by anyone. We are free to say whatever we want, basically, do whatever we want. But nevertheless, we have the ear of the decision makers. And that's been really uh, helpful, I think, both in terms of our freedom and in terms of the impact that some of the modeling can have on decisions. So how do you go from, from your modeling and what you discuss at the scientific table then to a political decision making or to policies being formed how to do it? That whole process has evolved over time. At the very beginning of the pandemic, of course, everybody was in sort of panic mode. And the way modeling, the way the path went from modeling through to decision making was kind of ad hoc. You know, we would get together, we'd talk about things and somebody would have a result that seemed significant. And then that person would go on and often, you know, make presentations directly to a health minister or something. Over time, the, there was a more formalized process that got put into place. We meet every week and we present results every week. And then there's a chair of that table that takes those results and then passes them on to sort of, there's a series of tables, if you like. So there's a modeling table and then there's a more general science table. And then there's a more general kind of decision-making table and people pass on this information along the way up into the cabinet of the government, basically. And so one of the chairs of our table would regularly go to the cabinet meetings to provide advice from our table and other tables as well. How they take that information and use it in making their decisions is not always transparent. I mean, all we can do is offer the 
you know, the insights we can provide from the modeling. And then, of course, they need to take that and integrate it with all kinds of other information and come up with some decision, partly based on the science, but I'm sure often also based on political considerations, too. So we give them the scientific input and then they somehow incorporate that into all the other things they need to think about and make some sort of decision. Sometimes you can see the direct path and you can see, oh, that's that's really nice. You know, they made a decision and that was because of the stuff we did. And sometimes you do stuff and you think this is a really important thing to do and it just gets ignored, partly because of people's loss of appetite for locking down and, you know, a whole variety of things that have to be considered when they're making the decisions. So as a scientist, what do you have to think about them when you communicate to decision makers? As a scientist, we're often used to talking to other scientists. And so we talk in our own language sometimes. We have a certain sort of implicit expectation of where everybody is in terms of their background. And so we can start the conversation in a certain place where you wouldn't be able to start it with people who didn't have that background. And so the main thing that I really noticed is you really need to distill the message you're trying to sell. And, and you need to distill it in a in a digestible way, I guess. You can't present a lot of graphs. You can't present a lot of equations, of course. You need a way of capturing the idea graphically almost in order to get people to really appreciate the significance of the results that you're trying to talk to them about. Very important points there to be clear and to bring everything across. Yeah, for sure. And to do your modeling then, what do you need? What kind of input parameters or what do you put into the model and how do you make it, I don't know if the word successful is the right word. That's a good question. So early on, of course, a lot of it was guesses and a lot of it was wrong. And that was true for models all over, you know, in all different countries when they were constructing models. Early on, there was so little information about the kinds of parameters that you need to know about to build models that are accurate that a lot of the time they weren't accurate. But there are some questions that are more qualitative, I guess you would say. And so to give you an example, one of the things we worked on early in the pandemic before there was really much known was a question about how we're going to start to reopen. So here in Canada, the very first thing that happened is everything really got locked down very tightly. You know, everything was restricted because we didn't really know whether we were even going to be able to control it. And then it seemed like it was possible to control. I mean, we saw that was happening in China and Italy and other places at that time. But then the question was, okay, well, now how can we start to open things up again without having everything blow up on us? And so one of the things we spent a, quite a bit of time looking at is various ideas of cohorting. So, you know, if you had a workplace, some people would come in on alternate days, for example. There were even sort of much broader scale ideas where the society as a whole would people with an even address would be out on one day and people with an odd address would be out on the other day. And so even though we didn't have a lot of information about the parameters of for COVID specifically, we could start to address that general question. If we have an infectious disease in general, say, and we implement different kinds of cohorting strategies, which sorts of strategies are, from a qualitative standpoint, more effective than others? And so we spent quite a bit of time early on in the pandemic addressing those kinds of questions. And those were some of the places where we actually had some of the most direct influence on what happened in terms of policy decisions. We couldn't say, you know, if you do this, there's going to be this number of cases. But what we could say was this kind of cohorting strategy is better than that kind of cohorting strategy. Those sorts of questions. These models, you said they are never perfect and some have been wrong. And we've also seen that in Sweden, some have been terribly wrong. 
luckily enough, because there was one quite early on in the pandemic, which predicted a lot of people to die before June 2020, I think. And luckily enough, that wasn't true. But these models, I mean, how can you make them as good as possible, so to say? Yeah, I mean, we had the same issues here. Some of the early models that were projecting the case counts were far, far off of what actually happened. And again, like you said, thankfully, things were much better than that. Part of the reason things were better is because I think some of those models scared people into action. And so a lot of things were done to try and control the disease, and that helped. But I do think the models were also wrong in many ways. They get better as time goes on and we get more information for sure. I think the other thing that has been critical that I think was missing in some of the early modeling and how it was being used in giving results to the public and in trying to inform the government is there wasn't enough done to convey the level of uncertainty in some of the models. So every model that we build, even if we know quite a lot about the parameters, of course, random things happen in reality and the trajectory of the disease is not going to be perfectly predictable in a deterministic way. And so any reasonable model is going to project a range of outcomes. And I think it's important not only to explain to decision makers where that range of outcomes, where it comes from, what's causing that that variability, and also really stressing that you can't just take the average or the median or some single trajectory through that range and assume that's what's going to happen. You really have to sort of embrace the fact that it's uncertain and there's this envelope of possibilities. And we really can't say much about where within that envelope we're going to be. That was often lost, I think. So in Canada, at least the initial modeling, you know, people would say there's going to be this many cases by June. And that's an unrealistic, unreasonable sort of expectation to try and live up to as a modeler. You could say, you know, I expect it's going to be somewhere between this and this. Hopefully that band is reasonably narrow. And the more we learn, the narrower we can make that. But the uncertainty is a critical thing that I think wasn't conveyed enough in the initial stages of how the modeling was used. And then things also happen like a new virus variants that have come up, especially the Delta, I think, that has changed a lot of things. So. That's right. In fact, that's, you know, that sort of evolutionary side of things is where we have done most of our work prior to COVID. And so although it was a horrible thing to see happen, it was fascinating in many ways from an evolutionary standpoint to see first Alpha come through and basically replace the original variant and then Delta do the same thing. Early on, I think a lot of people discounted the possibility that there would be any evolution, any significant evolution in the sense of it having any consequences epidemiologically. But it's obviously that's changed since the spread of these those two variants in particular. For us in Canada, at least, and I mean, a lot of places throughout the world, the UK has had a remarkably good surveillance system and a remarkably good group of people doing modeling there. And so when Alpha spread initially, the first alarm bells of that came from the UK, and they had good enough data to be able to estimate a lot of the parameters quite well. And so by the time it started to come and take off here in Canada, we already knew quite well what the characteristics of alpha were going to be. And so before it really was even noticed here, we'd already made modeling projections about the consequences of the spread of that. And all we needed to know at that point then was once we can figure out how frequent it is here in, in Canada, we can then use those parameter estimates from the UK and very, very accurately actually project what's going to happen going forward. You said nobody really thought the virus would change that much, but isn't that strange? I mean, that's what viruses do. They change all the time. 
it is strange to someone like me, you know, that's what I do. I study the evolutionary change in viruses. It's not that they didn't think mutations would happen. Most people, I think, or a large majority of people felt that the mutations that are going to happen will likely not be that important in terms of changing the characteristics of the virus. But for people who study, you know, the evolutionary side of this, it was perfectly natural to expect that would happen. I mean, this is a new virus that's come into a, a new host population. There's presumably lots of scope for evolutionary adaptation in that new host population. And we see that all the time in experimental studies people have done on these sorts of cross-species transmissions. So it wasn't unexpected, I think. The thing that that I think is maybe a bit surprising to even to most people, though, is the magnitude of the effects of the, you know on transmission that alpha had and then delta had over alpha. They were very large changes, increases in the transmissibility of of this thing. And although I think many people might have expected some increase evolutionarily, the size of the changes, I think, were quite surprising. They were to me anyways. I wasn't surprised that it was getting more transmissible, but the magnitude of the change was quite impressive. Yeah, and that happened about at the same time as the vaccines were being rolled out. So it felt a little bit like you were giving hope by the vaccines and then... And then it all disappeared again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, the other thing I think it's worth saying that is sort of related to this question of models being maybe wrong and the projections often in the models that people come up with were wrong. It's turned out to be much easier to predict certain evolutionary aspects of the pandemic than the epidemiological ones. And so what I mean by that is it can be quite hard to predict the total number of infections going forward. What are the number of infections going to be over the next four weeks or two months or whatever it might be? It can be hard to pin that down very carefully because, you know, sometimes we open up certain segments of the economy and that's going to change things and we may not have foreseen that. It turns out to be relatively easy, though, to predict what the frequency of these new variants is going to be over time. And the reason is that all that matters to predict the frequency is the difference in the growth rates between the new variant and the old variant. And so when we open up and close different segments of the economy, often that difference doesn't change very much. They're both affected in some way. And so the relative advantage of the new variants doesn't change all that much. And, and what that means is it's you can actually make quite long-term projections about how we expect the frequency of alpha and then delta to increase over time. And those were remarkably accurate. At least here in Canada, they were. They were from almost zero frequency to nearly 100% frequency. You could predict it almost perfectly. Now during the autumn, we see the spread of a lot of other viruses like normal cold, the flu is supposed to hit a lot harder because we have all not been sick for one and a half years and not been in contact with these viruses. Is that something you can model also? That's exactly what people are are worried about. It's because of all the control measures for COVID last year, you know, the case counts of other infectious diseases were, were really low as well. And so maybe now we're even more susceptible to the flu that's going to be coming around this year. It's a bit hard, I think, to know You know, if you just look at what's happened with flu from one season to the next, sometimes it's more severe than others. And it's not that easy to predict how severe it's going to be from one year to the next. And so although there's a certain amount of logic to the, the worry that, that you just mentioned, and that might play out, I think it's quite hard to predict with much certainty of whether things are going to be more severe or not. And I guess there's a couple of ways you might think of severity. One is 
for any individual that's infected, is this particular flu this year likely to be more severe? Am I more likely to die or at least have more severe outcomes? And also the total case counts is another index of severity. I think it's, like you said, there, there are reasons to expect that maybe it's going to be worse, but it's not entirely clear that that prediction is something we should place a lot of weight on, I guess. I think it is true that there will be more, though, just because we're opening up again, right? And so I think the challenge for the control of COVID, at least, part of it is going to be distinguishing between COVID infections and these other infections that are going to be happening all the time. Modeling ahead, can you say anything what we can expect now? What can happen according to your models? Good question. So, I mean, I think in the long term, the expectation is this is going to be, it kind of already is, becoming an endemic disease. Uh, we're not going to get rid of it. We're going to have to live with it at some level, and it's a matter of how we live with it. So we've done a bit of modeling on, again, on the evolutionary side of things. Going forward with these really high rates of vaccination, you might expect that that's going to impose some novel forms of selection on the viral population and result in evolutionary change, viral immune escape variants, a variety of different sorts of ways that vaccines can drive evolution. We've done modeling on that. I hesitate to say anything too specific because it's all very contingent on which variants happen to arise. And at this stage, you know, we have very little, I guess, scope for making predictions about the next variant that's going to appear. If you look at what's happened in other diseases that are novel infectious diseases, so a new parasite comes into a host population, initially, even when there's vaccination, you get adaptation to the host, and that adaptation makes the virus better regardless of whether it's in a naive host or in a vaccinated host. And so that's what's happened so far with COVID. So if you look at the alpha variant or the delta variant, it's better than the previous variants and it's better in both vaccinated and unvaccinated hosts. So it's just overall better. As time goes on, what you see in other infectious diseases is you start to see a trade-off where when a virus gets better in a vaccinated host, it comes at a cost of being less good in an unvaccinated host. That tends to be a, a repeated pattern in, in what we see in other viral diseases. That hasn't happened yet in COVID. So that's sort of, I think, the one broad scale prediction that I think, based on what's happened in other diseases, I'd be reasonably comfortable saying that at some point I'd expect the next variant that comes along will be adapted to the vaccine and will be less good at infecting individuals that are unvaccinated. So that's a big guess still on my part, but... Given what we see in other diseases over time, that's sort of the general pattern. What are the lessons we can take with us for the next pandemic? There will definitely be more. It certainly wasn't the first. <laughs> it won't be the last. The thing that surprised me the most about this was just how effective what's called non-pharmaceutical interventions could be. It didn't really occur to me that we could use that sort of an intervention so effectively. I just didn't think it would be possible to close down entire economies in the way we did to stop the spread of a disease. Obviously, that's not a sustainable solution, but the fact that that's possible is kind of interesting and gives some hope that the next time something comes around, it may well again be possible to do that until like this time we gained enough information about what was going on to be able to start to do things in a more nuanced way. I guess the other thing here in Canada, I'm not sure what it's like in Sweden, but I mean, we were not well prepared 
you know, for PPE and stuff like that. We had a bunch of stockpiles that had expired. Nobody bothered to, you know, keep track of these things. I think at one point we were prepared and then things just slipped and nobody thought this was something to worry about anymore. We have no vaccine production capacity in Canada. At the, and we're starting to invest in that now. So I think those things, well, if we can maintain those things, hopefully that will help, right? I guess if the next pandemic that happens is far enough away, maybe we'll eventually become complacent again and we'll say, ah, we don't need to invest in this anymore. We've been spending all this money on these things and it's been all for nothing. So we'll cut back on this like we did in the past and then we'll be cut short again. But uh, hopefully not. Hopefully we will take this as a lesson and be able to be more prepared for the next one. In a much earlier episode, when we had just started this podcast in the summer of 2020, we had Fredrik Schapentier-Jungquist as a guest. He is a historian and has looked at pandemics from a historical perspective. And we talked a bit about the Spanish flu. And an interesting thing was that quite a lot of the interventions were the same as now, like staying at home, washing your hands and so on. You could sort of recognize the recommendations from a bit more than 100 years ago. At some level, that's a little bit disappointing that we haven't somehow developed better technology, maybe. But that's absolutely right, yes. So anyway, he was also talking about models from his perspective and was surprised to what extent models have been informing politicians and shaping the response, rather than looking back at empirical knowledge from historical pandemics. Do you have any thoughts on this? It's an interesting observation. I mean, it's certainly true this time. My sense first is that comparing what happened now to, say, SARS in 2003 or whenever it was, obviously that was much less severe and we managed to control that and eventually get rid of it. There was modeling there as well, but for whatever reason, I think modeling has been embraced much more in this current pandemic than it ever has been previously. And I don't really know why that is. I mean, there have never been a shortage of modelers around, even in these earlier pandemics as well. I mean, you know, maybe not going back to the Spanish flu, but certainly other infectious disease outbreaks. But for some reason, this one, modeling has been really embraced in, in the way people are trying to understand what's happening and make recommendations for its control. I think, you know, looking back historically is if you can find things that are comparable, that's absolutely a good thing to do. Like you said, for the Spanish flu pandemic, we're doing the same thing we did there, not necessarily because we look back and saw, oh, well, they did that there, so we're going to do that here. Certainly, if you can find things that are comparable, then that's effective. So, I mean, the obvious things we might do with this outbreak is look at other SARS outbreaks, right? So people have looked at other coronaviruses, which are some that are circulating regularly in the human population. So they've used those as a guide to think about what might happen in the long term. Maybe this will become endemic like those ones have. We've used the, the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s as well as a guide, but noting that there are some important differences. And so to some extent, what we did there didn't work very well here because of those differences. Even more effective, though, I think, and this sort of what I alluded to earlier is it doesn't spread simultaneously everywhere in the world. Some places are the unfortunate countries that have things first. And so what's been really effective, I think, is seeing what's happened in other places before it's happening where we live, for example, and then using that as a sort of historical pandemic to make better predictions about what's going to happen going forward. 
So like I said, with the alpha variant and the delta variant, that's exactly what we did here. So it's a small scale version of what you're talking about, but it's the same kind of thing where you observe this alpha variant spreading and all the consequences of that in the UK. And it hasn't happened here yet, but now we see what's happening there and we can use that to prepare and make projections and that sort of thing here. It's the same idea on a smaller scale. And I think it is absolutely important. I mean, I think most of our successful projections have been deeply informed by data from other places where they were the unfortunate collectors of the initial data. Yeah, nowadays you can collect so much data also in a limited amount of time. I mean, yeah, and the genetic data that's been available this time around has just been unbelievable. And in real time, I mean, the stream of data has just been incredible. I read a recent publication in Nature, the scientific journal, about how the pandemic has unleashed attacks on scientists also. I mean, quite a lot of scientists have received nasty emails and comments and even death threats, and some even needed security measurements and so on. What is your experience having being part of this table for COVID-19? So I have not received a death threat, but I have definitely received multiple angry, nasty emails and phone messages. Typically this happens, we'll do some modeling and one of the newspapers or the radio will get hold of that and ask you to do an interview or something like that. And then immediately after that, you get a few in my case, at least, messages, you know, angry, often nonsensical messages. I mean, people are frustrated. You can understand that. In Canada, at least, my experience is that it hasn't been to the extent, you know, the threats and sorts of things that have happened in the U.S., for example. My experience is that it hasn't happened to that extent here. But there are definitely, like I said, every time you your name goes out there or one of your modeling results goes out there, you can expect something to come back. How does that affect you and your work? I've at least received two flavors of responses. Some of them seem reasoned. And so it does make you take them seriously and think, you know, maybe there's something we're missing. We should consider this, that, and the other thing or whatever. But some of them are just clearly angry responses that are not, you know, ultimately because of something we've done, but just an overall frustration, I think. And those, I find it easy enough to shrug those ones off. Is there anything you want to add about the COVID-19 work? I guess the one thing maybe I would mention that's kind of, I think, surprised me and maybe of interest to SCAS listeners in particular is this panel that I've been working on. I mean, as I said, it's interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. And it's been pretty interesting to see how some of the social scientists have had important influence, both in the modeling, actually, and in ultimately what happens in terms of decisions. So much like other diseases, a lot of the brunt of COVID-19 has been borne by certain socioeconomic groups, different geographic locations. And those are often people who work in certain economic sectors. You know, in Toronto, for example, the communities are often geographically relatively isolated. So there's a whole socioeconomic side to the pandemic, in addition to what's happening epidemiologically, that has been important. And it's been important in the control of the pandemic as well. So you build your model and you see it spread and you don't account for the fact that most of the spread happens in 
communities where people tend to be working in the Amazon factory or something like that, right? You miss the important aspects of where you might actually be able to have significant control measures. And so that kind of feedback and that kind of input from social scientists and scientists simultaneously, I think, has been really important, allowing people to come up with very directed strategies for interventions, you know, because you know much of what's happening is a result of certain groups of people not being able to stay home from work, right? And I think that multidisciplinary flavor, I wouldn't say surprised me. It amazed me how that could all somehow be incorporated into what was ultimately being decided in terms of intervention. When you don't work with modeling of COVID-19, you do research on evolutionary epigenetic inheritance. Yeah, that's right. In fact, when I was at SCAS, everyone gives a colloquium or a talk. That was what I talked about there. The general perspective in evolutionary biology is that evolution occurs as a result of natural selection acting on variation that's determined by the genetic composition of individuals. There's a growing realization, I think, or maybe recognition that there are other sources of variation that are also heritable, not just genetic variation. In epigenetics, the word is often defined differently by different people, so I suppose it's important to be clear on what, on what I mean by it. The way we talk about epigenetics would be things like methylation patterns, histone patterns, anything that is sort of a, a molecular medium, let's call it, for inheritance that's not purely DNA sequence variation. There are other forms of inheritance that are not epigenetic or genetic as well. Cultural inheritance is an obvious example. So we've been interested in trying to, you know, expand in some ways some of the, the models for how evolution occurs and look at the consequences for evolutionary change when there are multiple inheritance mechanisms operating simultaneously. Genetics is obviously the most important one. I think nobody would dispute that. But there are interesting consequences of these other forms of inheritance that I think can result in patterns of evolution that are unanticipated in the absence of considering those other forms of inheritance. Yeah, so it's other changes to the DNA and DNA structure than the pure genetic um, changes. Do you have any example there, what kind of work you have done or what you're planning to do? Maybe one of the most interesting ones that has been worked on by others recently is in a worm called C. elegans. It's a workhorse for a variety of different kinds of studies in, in the life sciences. So it feeds on bacteria, and it feeds on bacteria that can sometimes contain pathogenic bacteria, so bacteria that will make the worms sick. As they feed, they learn to avoid pathogenic bacteria. There are certain chemical cues. They can figure out that, you know, this one's bad, this one's good, so I'm going to avoid that one. And they eventually learn to avoid the bad ones and eat only the good ones. That learned behavior can then be passed on to their offspring. And, and, you know, maybe you'd think that's not that surprising. We learn things, right? And we pass on some of the things we learn to our offspring. It turns out that learned behavior can be passed on at least four generations. And it's not mediated by any sort of cultural inheritance. It's mediated by a molecular mechanism involving small RNAs. So somehow they learn And then that learning gets encoded in quotes in some sort of molecular mechanism involving small RNAs. And this is actually quite well worked out molecularly. 
And that is then passed on for at least four generations. So you look four generations down the line, these new worms already have inherited this memory in a sense of what is good and what is bad in terms of feeding. And so that's, I think, a pretty unique, it's an unusual thing. People would not normally think of a learned behavior as being heritable in that sort of molecular way. And the consequences of that for evolution, I think, are not not well understood at this point. So that's one of the things we've been starting to build models for. When would we expect the evolution of patterns of inheritance like that? So a pattern where you inherit your parents' learned behavior or other sorts of learning in folks. And then what are the consequences for evolution more generally if those sorts of things exist? So does what happens evolutionarily differ in the presence of that kind of an inheritance system? And if so, how? So those are some broad questions for that specific system that we've been interested in building models for. Another one comes back to antibiotic resistance in bacteria. There's this well-known phenomenon in some bacteria called persister cells, where when you apply an antibiotic to a bacterial population, you kill off most of the population, but there's a small fraction of the population that seems to remain. And you might think that that small fraction is somehow genetically resistant, but it it turns out that that's not the case in a lot of these examples, because when you take those and then you reconstitute the population, they quickly expand to be a full-size population again, but they're just as susceptible to the antibiotic as the original population was. When you apply the antibiotic, you kill off most of them and this tiny fraction remains again. And so these have been called persister cells, and it's been figured out that those cells are in some kind of different phenotypic state. It's not that they differ genetically, they differ phenotypically. They're dormant to some extent. And their dormancy is determined by various molecules in the cytoplasm of the cell. And those molecules can be transmitted from one generation to the next. And so there's another example of a form of inheritance that's not genetic that has important implications in terms of, in this case, the evolution of drug resistance. So that form of non-genetic inheritance plays a role in the ability of populations to withstand treatment. And the thing we're interested in exploring in models now is how does the existence of that form of non-genetic inheritance affect the evolution of genetic resistance to drugs? So again, two systems of inheritance and their interaction potentially has some role in what happens in terms of drug resistance in this case. And how does that all play out evolutionarily? How do we expect it to play out? We can ask that with models and then hopefully use those models to maybe direct some potentially interesting experiments that might be done. So there's an interplay between the two systems, or it might be. Yeah, exactly. So there's some evidence that the presence of persisters or other sorts of forms of tolerance, at least, to antibiotics can enhance the evolution of genetically determined drug resistance. And you can think of simple reasons why that might be true. It may be nothing more than the fact that a chunk of the population can persist allows for the appearance of more genetic mutations than would otherwise occur. It might be something as simple as that. But there could be other more subtle forms of interaction between these two inheritance systems as well that play a role. And then potentially once you know more about this, you could sort of use it for designing new drugs or... Yeah, I suppose in the long term that might be true. We're, at this point, we're, although we have been interested in those kinds of questions, in this context, we're, we're thinking of this solely as a, an example of evolution in the context of multiple inheritance systems. But you're right. I mean, if something interesting comes of it, we can learn something new and understand it better. 
maybe there's some implications there for how we might control diseases as well. Because it is true that a lot of treatment failure seems to be a result of this kind of phenomenon. The exploration of inheritance in itself is, of course, very important. And there is still a lot that we don't know. I mean, that is a bit fascinating in itself. As we were talking about earlier, I mean, nowadays, genetics generate so much data and in real time. So how does that influence your work and the type of things you can actually do and model? Well, for those two examples I mentioned, what it does is it... I mean, I'm not a molecular biologist, but what it does is it provides important information on the mechanisms that are underlying these things. So if you think of this example of C. elegans, for instance, where four generations down the road, the offspring are seem to have inherited this learned behavior. If you had no idea how that would happen in a mechanistic sense, you might think that maybe there's some screw up in your design of your experiment, however you set about measuring these things or testing it, somehow it's an artifact of something. But once you know that you understand that there is this molecular mechanism through which this whole process occurs and by which you can get this phenomenon, it starts to not only give you greater confidence that the results you're seeing at the sort of organismal level are probably not an artifact, because I can understand how this happened based on a mechanism, but I can also now model that specific mechanism and see if there are any consequences of the particular way in which that inheritance works that, that might be important in understanding evolutionary change. One of the things, just to give you an example, that, I mean, again, I'm not a molecular biologist, but part of the mechanism involved in this case in C. elegans is very specific to C. elegans, apparently. And so you might ask, is this phenomenon general? Do we expect to see it in other places? We see it in C. elegans. Well, at least the mechanism that's underlying it in C. elegans is relatively specific, I think, to that organism. And so other organisms don't necessarily have the same kinds of biochemistry. And so you wouldn't expect to see at least the same underlying mechanism in other places. That doesn't mean there might not be some other mechanism underlying similar phenomena elsewhere, but I think it does sort of constrain the world of possibilities in some way by understanding these details. I remember a study, I don't know if I remember it correctly, but it was, I think they were looking at some epigenetic markers of people, of humans who had been children after the Second World War and been hungry, quite a lot have been in starvation, and they could find then the same epigenetic markers in their grandchildren, I think. That's quite fascinating. Yeah, that's right. In some of the Scandinavian countries, there are these remarkable data sets that people have collected that allow you to do those sorts of analyses. And there was some of this in the, I think it's called the Dutch hunger winter or something like that as well. So you see those kinds of patterns in those data sets. That's a good example to bring up. You might think that those are correlational studies, basically. They have to be because you've got all this historical data and all you can do is look for patterns in it. You can't do an experiment with it. So when you see these patterns, you might worry that somehow those patterns are just a result of some underlying other thing that we don't understand. And so it's somehow an artifact. But now that we're learning more about mechanisms in organisms that can actually generate these sorts of patterns, it gives you greater confidence that those sorts of patterns really are real in the sense of demonstrating that a grandparent's food environment will affect their grandchildren's physiology in some way. Genetics, that's what you worked on when you were at SCAS. What did you do here? 
So that's what I gave my presentation on when I was at SCAS. I was there at the same time with a couple of other fellows that were working on ideas involving the evolution of mating systems and the evolution of dimorphism in males versus females. So that's quite a different topic again, but it's in some ways related because some of the differences between males and females are presumably epigenetically determined too. How that matters in terms of inheritance of, of epigenetics and non-genetic material, I'm not sure. But it was quite a different vein of research, though, the, what we were focusing on there. It was a fantastic time there, I have to say. The regular meals with people that you probably wouldn't normally encounter on your day-to-day existence was fantastic. It's a really a remarkable environment. And nowadays, I guess you, I mean, you already said it, you work together with people from a lot of different backgrounds in an inter- and multidisciplinary setting. So what is your experience of that? For a long time, I have worked with interdisciplinary groups in the sense of combining biology or life science and mathematics. And those two are often thought of as unusual combination of disciplines. It's often thought that biology is not very quantitative. And so what is mathematical biology? That doesn't even make sense that such a thing would exist. But they're both sciences, right? And of course, there's lots to mathematical biology. But even if you sort of step back, I mean, in the scheme of multidisciplinarity, those are both sciences. And so it's not like they're all that far apart, at least in the way they approach the world. My experience with this COVID table and the work we've been doing there is that we've broadened beyond the sciences. And that was remarkable to me how effective that could be in this particular context. It's easy to work with scientists, even if you're biologists or mathematicians or physicists, because at some level you all have the same language and you approach the world with the same sort of mindset. But broadening the scheme of multidisciplinary through this COVID panel, I think, was something that I hadn't really appreciated the significance of it until then. I was at SCAS before this, obviously, right? And so I had that experience there, you know, enjoyed conversations with people who were working in other areas, just because it's interesting to learn about other things and what other people are doing. But this COVID work was the first time I actually worked with people from that diverse of a set of areas and did it in a way that seemed amazingly effective, I think. So it'd give me a different perspective, I think, if I came back to SCAS now, maybe I would seek out more uh, you know, research opportunities or something like that. Maybe you have to sort of experience it in real life and like in a, in a sharp situation, so to say. I think that's right. I mean, I, I think if I spent longer in a place like SCAS, it would happen gradually too. But the COVID situation, everybody was kind of panicked and there was a very focused goal. And so I think that helped you know, coalesce people around a common theme, right? Everybody knew ultimately what they were trying to do. And it was just a matter of figuring out how best to do that thing. And that certainly helped for sure. But then environments like this gas, what can they offer to to scientists and especially to natural scientists like you? Because this is an environment that is a little bit dominated by the humanities and social sciences and so on. What can you gain from exposing yourself to different disciplines? ultimately, for me, comes down to a different way of of approaching problems. As a scientist, we, I, at least I think most or many anyways, you have an idea of what you think is important. You try and strip away and strip away everything, everything, everything until there's this one thing left and you have this one thing that you're focused on and you're studying that thing and you really understand that one thing. And in many ways, at least the people I've interacted with with COVID, they, they don't approach the problem that way. They have all of these factors somehow in their heads. 
and try to somehow simultaneously balance the consequences of all of these things and, and consider the fact that you can't really strip away one thing without affecting what's happening with this other thing. And it's that more holistic, maybe, way of approaching the problem, I think, that is where the, at least in my experience, where the main difference lies. And that's where I think some of the more interesting interactions happened. So you said yourself, maybe you would do it all differently if you were coming to discuss now. What would your advice be to somebody coming here now after the pandemic, or at least now that things have calmed down a little bit and people can have lunch together again and so on? Maybe it's a bit strong to say I do things differently. I guess my impression, at least when I came there, is everybody comes there and they have something they're working on. And it's interesting to interact with people in here, which other people are working on and think about different ideas. It would be interesting to have people come with the goal of working on something together. I don't know how feasible that is, but I'm just sort of trying to replicate in some way the, the, my experience with COVID. If there was a particular issue that was a focal issue that then you brought people in that were you know, economists, social scientists, whatever, all focused on this particular problem. Of course, they'd have to be interested in it to begin with and have motivation to work on it. That might be a way to try and spark significant collaborations. Otherwise, I think they take much longer to develop because everybody's doing their own thing and you gradually see what other people are doing and you eventually, over time, develop some common interest potentially, but that's a much longer-term process. Thank you very much for joining SCUS Talks and talking to me and our listeners about your research. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to SCUS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the second episode in the theme Life Sciences, and I have talked to Troy Day, Professor of Mathematics, Statistics and Biology at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada, about his work on modeling during the COVID-19 pandemic, and some of his research on evolutionary epigenetic biology. And this was the second episode within our theme life sciences. In the previous episode, within the same theme, I have talked to Erica Johnson, professor in Gender and Society at Linköping University, about her recent book A Cultural Biography of the Prostate. This fall, SCUS Talks will feature the following topics, life sciences, infrastructures and Asia. The pandemic has been a recurrent theme on this podcast. You can check out episodes number 1, 2, 3 and 14, for instance. Other topics have been the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa and life in outer space. We now have a total of 25 episodes and are sure that there is something of interest for everybody. Do you like SCUS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. You can also give us a rating or leave a review. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Troy Day once again for joining me on SCAS Talks. And of course, thank you for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>